talking about being neat. Are you super neat? Yeah, I'm a pretty neat person. That's what I bet. I remember you saying that. Joe, Sophie, Sophie, Joe. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to Art Luck Podcast, where we make art accessible. I'm Sophie. And I'm Seema. And we are joined by... Joseph Minnick. What are your handles, Joseph Minnick? What are my handles? Um, It's actually just my name, because I'm not creative with writing at all. It is just at Joseph Minnick. No, uh, that's perfect. Perfect. Then, Do you have any gallery by any chance? Yes, it is Von Lintel Gallery in Los Angeles, and the handle for that is at Von Lintel Gallery. Great. And nice. where where are you making your art? Where do you live, Joe? In good old Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> and I should say, Joe and I used to work together in Cleveland, Ohio. That's how we know each other. Yeah. So thank you for being here. I'm excited to talk about photography. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And we, so we invited you partly because of Frank. But also because Sophie is a photographer, she does historic process, but also does a lot of abstraction. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. And the so I uh, this started because Sophie and I met on TikTok, and, um, <laughs> and we love it there. We, we do lot. We sort of love it there. TikTok world's exciting. I don't but know if that's the word I'd use, but it was happy and then yesterday. Oh my god. It's fun in its own we, way. We actually convinced we, got Frank yeah, we actually convinced there. Frank by the end of our last recording that it's a platform to be on. So Yeah, not gonna happen. Well so Frank I think that so the reason we brought you is because I don't know if I'd give you the same advice. Um so the TikTok mm. loves realism. Yeah. And it hates abstraction. So we mm-hmm. invited you because it hates abstraction. Perfect. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't post I don't my go on TikTok. Um, <laughs> I get I get my TikTok stuff the way that older people do by seeing it two weeks after when it's been put on Instagram. You're only a little bit younger than me. Don't that's, call us old. That's that's how I get it. <laughs> or or through Leslie because Leslie has TikTok. She downloaded the app on my phone. <laughs> so that don't you have a funny phone... handle like we're a family or so? she has a funny handle. Oh, it's the TikTok family. That's like nice. I, I like calling that's it funny. TikTok. Or the family tic-tac. That's what it is. My mother calls it clickety-clock. Yeah, I like calling it tic-tac. I saw it because her, uh, she must, I don't know how it is, like, I must have your, she must have your phone on it or something, but it came up as somebody I might know. Or maybe we see each other on, like, Instagram, but it came up, and I was like, oh, that's funny. That's a good one. Yeah, she has it, yeah, she has it on my phone so that if her phone is charging or dead and she wants to scroll through TikTok, she just takes my phone and goes through TikTok. Oh, I do that with my Joe too. Yeah, when my phone dies, I turn over to his. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's like, can I have your phone? I want to watch TikToks. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Don't care. (laughs) Won't be posting on TikTok though. No, I would, I I mean, I think this is one of the things that I find really interesting because you post, you post reg, you are like very good on Instagram. I know I'm always, I'm never on Instagram, but if I go, I'm like, wow, look at Joe, just so organized and posting regularly on Instagram. But you Surprisingly, I haven't been lately. Really? Maybe it's because I'm not on there. So just in my feed, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. But, I've been going um, like months between posts lately. Really? Yeah. Well, the, with the new way that the algorithm looks, it looks like you're still totally on it. Perfect. Um, yes, it looks great. Um, but I'd say, like, Sophie posts on TikTok her artwork as well. 
not my abs- I not, did- sorry not my abstraction not your abstraction that is mm. true that is true um i, but- I just know it's gonna flop <laughs> Well, that's what my question is. How do you handle if it like doesn't get views? Me? Either of you. I mean, I don't care. Nice. Yeah. And in all reality, Why don't point, you care? I just don't care anymore. Uh-huh. Like it's, it's one of those things I post, like, I think that I post on social media as sort of like a digital sketchbook oh. or, or sort of like a digital archive. Um, to at least like throw things out there, but like I don't need to. Like I don't mm. think I've actually posted any. I don't think I've posted work in like six months or something like that. Now I'm going to my Instagram because I don't even know. Let's see. The last time I put up an actual piece was July eighth. No, oh, I so, just saw one when I when I messaged you. I had seen one come up on my feed. Yeah, July 8th was the last time that I actually posted, like, just a regular piece, and then I posted something, like, about the year and, like, everything that I had done this year. Uh, this year's been insane. Yeah, it has. Um, so, when you say you don't need to, do you mean that uh, you don't need to for your career, for yourself, or what do you mean by that? I think for myself and maybe not for my career at the moment, mm-hmm. at least. Um, mainly because I've sort of stepped, taken a step back from the studio. Have you? Or, or at least from the production aspect uh-huh. of the studio. I've been focusing more on, like, the body of work that I've been making, I'm going on, I think it's eight years now that mm-hmm. I've been making this, which just seems insane that it's been eight years that I've been making this type of work now. Um, time has condensed recently so give yourself a pass (laughs) Um, at least three of those years don't count yeah probably so I've just been sort of like going back through the work thinking about it trying to make a game plan for new pieces you know reading sort of doing research just sort of all that stuff and it doesn't help that the paper that I use I can't get anymore so my my heart breaks for you. <laughs> so both of you have interesting process. Both of you have interesting process things. And I think because process is better explained by people who do it, maybe Joe, tell us about the paper and then tell us your process. So the paper that I use is Kodak Premier Endura Metallic Photo Paper. So it's colored darkroom paper. And over the past three years since like COVID happened, Kodak has slowly but surely been sort of phasing it out because they can't get the supplies. Um, I found that out through the dealer that I get the paper through who only, they only sell to like private labs. Mm. And somehow like, I think it was like four years ago, I got in touch with someone at Kodak to try and order a bunch from Kodak. And they're like, you would be better off buying it from this place than us. So I started buying it from them and slowly but surely every time I would call them up to try and get a new roll of paper, they'd be like, well, we don't have it in that size. We only have it in this size. So I'd have to, you know, sort of just take what I could get. And then over the summer, I went to order more paper and they're like, this is all that we have left. And we don't believe that we're getting any more. 
They're like, Kodak has stopped production at the moment. So I bought whatever they had left, which was not a lot. I think I have like three rolls right now. Oh, this is not a visual medium, but the faces of pain across <laughs> my screen. <laughs> I feel, yeah. like, I feel like viscerally uh, sad for you. I no, should, like, I, I feel this in my, like, in my being and in my gut. Like, it, you, it's like losing a limb. Yeah, so I, like, bought all that paper. I have it sitting here. Um, I haven't made anything with it because I don't want to, like, waste it right now. And I'm trying to, like, figure out a game plan of what happens when this paper is done. Like, there is no other paper that I can get. That would give me the same results so right now it's sort of like this weird limbo that i'm in trying to figure out like i have ideas for pieces i just haven't went into the studio to actually like produce them yet because mm. whenever i go back into the studio to make the first few days are just horrible always like i end up wasting so much and I don't want to waste half a roll of three rolls of paper that I have at the moment you mean because of the like what happens that you have to waste them is it because you're like thinking through ideas or you're trying to get the rhythm or it's, what's it's thinking through ideas it's getting into the rhythm and just sort of like shaking off the rust uh -huh. for, for some reason whenever I go it like whenever because the way that I like to try and produce is I like to try and produce a lot at the same time so I'll go in for you know four or five days straight do you know 10 12 hours in the studio but usually the first day like I'll end up only doing four hours because everything that I make in that time like I'll take it out and I'm just like this isn't anything throw it away and just I usually end up very angry at the end <laughs> of the first day of the studio <laughs> so before we talk about what you're how you do your art let me just uh, let, let me sort of um push myself in here and say that so they're they're larger than you would think so if you see them on instagram and you look at them they're bigger than you think they look like tiny watercolors on instagram um and in real life they're large photographs and so you walk in and they're like they have this sort of interesting quality that is not like watercolor in real life they're much more like you said metallic paper but they're they're like jewel they're like watery jewel tones sort of and they speak they're like they sort of have a sense of like um you know like almost like studio glass because they shine a little bit um and they're very abstract and they're very mesmerizing in real life because you you don't quite know how they're made but you can imagine like almost like not not this is like going to take us awry a little bit but not uh the visual realism or like kind of you know um vegetal symbolism of tiffany but those kinds of layers there's one at the cleveland museum of art which we can put in the show notes that in the sky you can see that it's like a sunset and i think that is the closest thing i've seen to something that looks like these artwork um but they don't have any um specific elements just sh not even shapes like it's just forms sort of so how do you make those joe okay so the process to actually make them like i said it's colored darkroom paper 
And the first thing that I do is I take my roll and I just unroll it and cut it to, you know, a somewhat size that I want to actually work with. Um, it all sort of depends on the roll and what I want to do that day. Like if I'm working large or if I'm working small, but the one thing with just, you know, sort of like unrolling the paper is you're supposed to do that in complete darkness. So it's different from like black and white darkroom photography where you can have like the red safe light with color darkroom, you can't have any lights on. So when I unroll it in the light, I ruin the whole roll or at least ruin it for the traditional purposes of printing a photograph or a traditional photograph. Mm -hmm. So from there, then I actually take other strips of the same paper and lay it on top of there to sort of create a composition. And usually it's, you know, just these sort of forms or these like strips of paper. Then I roll that up. Then I take it into the actual dark room. And once I get into the dark room, that's when I start actually dunking it into various chemicals. And if you know anything about photography, everything has sort of like this, these strict parameters when it comes to like chemical photography. I don't adhere to any of those sort of things <laughs> when I'm working. Now that I know you after like, so I see and that we worked together for a while. I, that is so you. That's awesome. <laughs> so the paper, like color darkroom paper has specific set of chemicals. I don't use those chemicals on it. I actually use what are called E6 process chemicals, which are for color slide film. Like, don't use the right chemicals for it. I have paper that, you know, shouldn't be exposed to light that's just laying out, like, in the studio space. Um, we love to see it. It's so awesome. And, and so those chemicals, I only have three of them. And the one of them just gives me gray one of them gives me blue and the other one is a blix which is a bleach fix which just gives me sort of white and sort of stabilizes the paper so through you know like various combinations of going from like the gray chemical to the blue chemical depending on the time and the temperature i can get almost every single color in the spectrum so i put it through you know like the chemical process when I go in there, I have sort of an idea of what like tones I want to actually get. And normally what I have to do is I actually have to do time tests every single time that I go in there because like the chemistry, even if you get it to like an exact science, it's not an exact science. Like there is always flaws to it. What's a time test? So everyone knows. So what I do is I take, once I get my chemistry situated before I make my first actual piece, I will go through each chemical with like a strip of the same paper and we'll put it in for like 10 to 15 second intervals so that I can see what the tone actually is on that paper. So that when I go to work on my first actual piece, I know like, oh, at this gray, like at this gray tone, if I move it into the blue, I'm getting purple or I'm getting like a hot pink or I'm going to get yellow. So I have to do that so that I sort of know and have a game plan of like, oh, if I want to get purple, I need it in for, you know, a minute and 15 seconds. And if I go to a minute, 20 seconds, the color is going to shift completely. Joe has a video of him doing this with the mask and everything. He, he takes care of himself. If anybody's wondering, like, is, is Joe poisoning himself while he makes these? No. What I think of when I think of your work and actually, um, you know, Sophie, and we were talking about abstraction is 
when people say to me photography isn't an art which they do on tiktok sometimes uh if i post a photograph this is where i'm like really it feels like joe is really doing <laughs> this seems pretty artful there's a lot of work in there so what do you say to people who are like this is not an art i never get that this is not an art i get that this is not a photograph oh I what do you that say to that i mean that's sort of what my work's about is this idea of like what do we constitute as like a photograph or even like photographic at this point so I sort of go back to like the idea of like bringing it back to the basics like it is a light reaction it is a chemical reaction like those are the foundations of photography so technically this is like a photographic image I don't know if I would call it a photograph I mean I the series of works is called photographic works so, and I try and adhere to, you know, like most of the works stay at like traditional photographic sizes for that reason. Um, but yeah, I love having conversations. It's mainly photographers who say that, who like have arguments with me, like this isn't photography, this isn't a photograph. Like, Is there um, objection that you're not using a camera? I don't know. I think so. I think that it's that I'm not using a camera, but, you know, that sort of can even get into, like, do we consider photograms to be? That's what I was just going to say. Because, I mean, these are technically, like, I guess we could call them photograms or, like, chemograms. I don't know. Like, I think everybody gets too bogged down with the sort of, like, categorization of it. I mean, I don't even call them photographs. I just call them pieces at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's because people need order. Do people call them chemograms? Yes, people will call them chemograms. Mm -hmm. I've had them called chemograms. I've had them called photographs. I <laughs> just call them like unique C prints because yep. it technically is the C print process. Okay, um, interesting. We uh well cuz I'm I'm really curious about your process cuz I you are kind of like a bit of a name in my grad program as well. Um I was the... really excited when I told her I knew you. I was like I know somebody famous. <laughs> what what grad program is this? Oh, I was I was at Parsons MFA photo. Um just kind of made my way. I got a scholarship and I was just kind of like well I can't pass it up. Yeah, I don't like, I even said I've had I've had coffee with Joe Minnick. Well, the the <laughs> weird thing coffee. is the weird thing is I don't know these types of things. Like I think that I'm just like <laughs> this dude who lives in Cleveland who like <laughs> makes art. I show it sometimes. Like I know some of my like I know that like some of my friends show the work, but like I don't know that I'm being like discussed in like programs and things like that. Man, you never know where you're gonna end up. Yeah. But, um. I, I just like you I'm, might end up here <laughs> yeah exactly but you know I I would really love to kind of you know uh talk to you more about kind of your process and stuff because the work that I developed during my thesis work is essentially I took the kind of photogram process that is used um and kind of adopted into fabric printing uh essentially the same process as you know paper printing and drawing tannins out of plants <laughs> and then I just kind of smashed it together with collodion uh, oh, awesome. uh, uh, chemistry. So this is what I made like two days ago. And these prints are in, like just imbued with 
tons of silver nitrate. And I think because of the cellulose content and like the protein content of this particular fiber, they actually shift and color change. And they'll go through this kind of entire process of almost like going through a rainbow. Um, and then they'll end at this kind of uh, earthy, kind of ruddy brown color, like you see on the edges here. But my favorite part about them is that the botanical transfers stay stable mm. um, and, th and they don't move and kind of everything else moves around it. Yeah, that's, that's one question that I always get about my work is if my work is stable. Yeah. Uh, because when I was in grad school, and like before I started making this work, sort of the thing that pushed me to this work was I was actually deconstructing this same type of paper. Mm. So I was, you know, laying it in a bath for weeks at a time so that all of the, you know, like layers of it would actually break apart. And then mm. as the water evaporated, they would reform together to create, you know, different sort of forms. And those, I don't know how stable they are. I don't, I still have some of them around here. They're, you know, 10, 12 years old now. They're still staying. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're going to be like in 50 years. Before we move forward on that thing, I think it's so like basically what you were doing is making it so you were putting an image on a, in, on a substrate that had already been sort of degraded. So it'd be like printing on newspaper that had been already wrecked kind of. No. So I would actually take like, so let's say like any of my pieces, I would take that, but it was just solid color fields that I was working with at the time. Oh. And I would just put that in water. Oh, so you would make something and then degrade it. Yes. Cool. Like Anselm Keeper's artworks that fall apart in the gallery. Yes. Or like I would take, you know, like a palette knife and just scrape uh -huh. at like oh. the layers. Or I would nice. even take like nice. 3000 grit sandpaper for like car detailing and spend like hours just sanding a piece of paper to make it smoother than it actually was. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Nice. Interesting. So you're like polishing the surface on that one. Yeah. Except that I'm actually going through like some of the layers because yeah. this paper has six to seven layers like uh -huh. layers in it um mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. would actually start seeing like the yellow and the like sort of like red layers that pop up underneath mm. it makes me think of um you know one of the things that i um, love is when artworks like japanese shinto artworks let's say are left to their own devices and the elements and so in Shinto shrines, you, the, there'd be kami or like icons that were inside the shrines. They were, they were created after Buddhism shows up to Japan, but then you're not like, nobody's looking at them because they don't, you don't venerate them. You venerate like the space, right? So you, most people wouldn't see them. And then if that shrine went into disrepair, they would sell them to museum collections. And so that's why when you see museum collections, kami are like kind of wrecked and you see like maybe a couple of layers of paint down or some of the wood grain, it's because it's been abraded. Mm. So it sounds like that. Mm. Yeah. So both of you, your works could fall apart, right? In history. Those, yeah, those older pieces, yes. These ones, these seem stable because I do put them through, you know, like a fixative process and like the blicks, like the bleach fix process. So as far as I know, they're stable. 
I don't see, you know, any change. I have, you know, a few hanging in my studio that have, you know, like sunlight that goes on them and they seem fine. Um, the biggest problem with sort of like the idea of archiving this work is sea prints have probably the worst sort of like conservation. Um, they usually start to like color shift after like 60 to 80 years is what sort of like their archivalness is. But, you know, at this point, 60 to 80 years, I'm not going to be here. So, so let's talk about posterity, right? Like, I mean, I think a lot of people, probably because they see historic arts, right? So are you both making stuff for a thousand years from now for posterity for no. you? What do you, when do you, when do you think, like, what, what's your plan about the future? <laughs> my work is deliberately ephemeral because and you know the the plant matter and the nature is stable and I think that that's the message that I want to keep with this work because I don't you know me Seema I like I will fight historical archives and their validity until my dying day I also like why are photographers tasked with this idea of permeability with their art and no one else's like why do I have to do that and oil painters don't it just it just seems silly what about you Joe my thought process is in a hundred years really no one's gonna know who I am so why does it matter I think a lot of people think artists are in it for immortality totally and fame and all that kind of stuff accolades I make things because I feel like I have to make things <laughs> like it's I have to get it out of my body. <laughs> yeah, I have I have to make things. If I don't yeah. make things, I sort of go insane with ideas in my head. Coming into that, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the conceptual basis behind your work? Is there something or is there a particular thing that you hope people take away from looking at your work? I want people to be confused looking at my work. Nice. That's That's the main thing. I want people to think about like the idea of the process of making work and what we consider to be sort of photographic yeah okay. at this point um those are sort of the main like takeaways i love it when people get really close to the work and like try and figure out like oh is this a painting is this a drawing like it really doesn't matter to me i just like the idea of sort of that confusion that could happen because it the work has this really odd depth that starts happening in a lot of the pieces but when you get up close to it, it is just flat. Mm. Like it becomes a sort of flat piece. Um, and what do you think confusion offers people in the context of looking at art? I think it just, it starts forming an internal dialogue that can then become this sort of external dialogue. I mean, all artwork is there to make conversation. That's all that it's there for. So if the work is making people think about like, well, how was this made? Or like, what is a like how is this a photograph like my job's done at that point mm -hmm. yeah nice mm -hmm. I do feel like I get it I feel like um somebody said to me the other day I had done a video there was a whole meme for a while where people would go into MoMA or SF MoMA and um they would say that they could make that and it was like Barnett Newman or you know Eve Klein or something though not Franz Klein oddly enough I feel like Franz Klein is even more like I could make that, but whatever. And I was saying, you know, sometimes they, sometimes it is about like, you can make that. Like sometimes it is that like the process, they're trying to demystify the process. Sometimes it isn't, but either way, it just made you think a thing. And that's the point. And so somebody said, 
you know, I saw Barnett Newman in real life and it made me really anxious. And I said, maybe that was his point. Like maybe he wasn't trying to tell you a story, but make you feel a thing. And I said that similarly right after that about Agnes Martin. And what I think for art historians is if we allow conversation, then we keep the artwork going. Exactly. It's it's all about the conversation. Yeah, it can be, you know, something that's pretty, but it's there to start a conversation. So let's talk about pretty, because I actually think both of you also have. <laughs> you said it. You said it, Joe. I did say but it. I think, I don't this is one of my favorite things, though, like this, the secret to contemporary art, right? Just make it pretty. This is great. So, I mean, and I don't mean like both of you are pretty as well, but I mean your artworks. Um, I'll take it, though. But like, thank you. Thank you. Both of you are very attractive. We do have an episode today where we all have a lot of hair. <laughs> I well yeah no mine's like we got after the humidity out. disaster um, yeah. of rain yesterday <laughs> we, got, we all got a lot of hair so what is the role of pretty or this idea that the visitor would the viewer would see it as pretty in your work oh that's that's a difficult one mm-hmm. um I mean Seema you know me and you know how I dress I wear all like gray and black and like blue neutral colors i mean i'm wearing like all neutral right now you're a true so artist i will type, say jo. that joe and i when we work together i wear like all crayon colors <laughs> like, no I, i'm the same right because i work with kids all the time and i'm always dressed like a like a cartoon character <laughs> so we'd be in like we'd be working together and then joe, joe would be like <laughs> we go for coffee or something like it'd be me in like bright colors and then joe so it's true true you do wear a lot of those you have a lot of color on your hands. I yes, I I do have a lot of color from like tattoos and things like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's sort of like I I wear that, and then sort of my presence. A lot of people think that I'm just very serious, and then I make these very brightly colored, like I guess traditionally like pretty bright pieces. Um, I don't know. Would you it, say they reflect how you see the world? No, not a, it, the exact opposite. Really? And how I think about the work. Um, I think about the work very clinically, and I think that it's very cold work. Mm. Like, mm. I want. You do? To, yes. You think it's very cold? I can see that. You don't think that, Seema? Yeah. To me, no. it is, to me, it is no, cold because. I do not see it as cold. It is, it is this sort of like. I don't want to say that it's scientific, like, but it is scientific. It's like very flat and to the point. Like, I don't get emotion from this work. It feels like I think process of you like a me. candy maker. I think of you as a can- I really do. Like, I, because I've talked, I mean, I, like, we know each other in real life and we've talked about his work and I've heard of it. I think of you like a candy maker because, like, candy people, they have all this science and math and, like, you know, like they're making all this, like, careful like stuff. Glass when blows. I eat it, well yeah like glass bars. but when I eat the I don't eat glass but I do eat candy <laughs> and when I eat the candy like that I I don't I have a very exciting experience so I think you're setting up my warm experience yes but I don't mm-hmm. get warm experience from my work no you don't you don't have to candy makers and, are just doing their job and I mean that's one of the things like that I think about when like making the work and thinking about like colors um and even just thinking about like this idea of the audience and who sees your work, like I make bright, shiny things. 
people are attracted to bright and shiny it's it's the we we are crows it's true like having crows. like pinks and purples and blues and yellows like mm. and i mean i like looking at it too i, I do too I think that they're like aesthetically pleasing and I think that yeah they're like visual candy like they're great I mean that's the entrance point for the work that's how I as bad as it sounds like lure people into looking at my I make pretty things like it is it is aesthetically pleasing that's (laughs) just like that's the first layer of it to get people in to start having that conversation totally you know if we don't get to that conversation and people just see it as like ooh, pretty shiny like i don't know why i like this but i'm looking at it if you just said something that i want to underline you have to get people in that to Mm. me is part of when people don't like anybody could do it i so so joe and i have spent a lot of time just standing his day one of his day jobs he has a lot of day jobs is photographing works of art. And so he and I have stood for hours in front, of, in front of works of art, still and quiet while they're photographing them. And um, a lot of abstraction, like, I don't know, Al Held or um, uh, Alma Thomas, or um, I think we did a Frankenthaler. The thing about it is still, you have to get into it. And there is a balance and there is, there is a there's a, there are people who can create a composition that makes you look even if there's nothing in it. Absolutely, well, and that's, that, that's and I, not easy. It's not easy. I just it's, don't it's think not people easy. realize how hard that is. Yeah, well, that's something that I've actually been thinking like about pieces that I want to start making, like things that are sort of like in the pipeline, is actually going a lot more reductive with my work almost going to like these solid color fields, especially because of the nature of the paper. Um, Since it, you know, does have sort of like that metallic quality to it and that like super reflective quality, the idea of the image always changing inside of it. So if it is, you know, like a solid blue color field, you're going to see the whole space in the piece or you're going to see yourself like you can the viewer can never distance themselves from peace at that point and i've been thinking about that and like how does that function and why like why do i want to do that at this point it's it's interesting when i was in college i took a photo class with that chicago photographer laura latinsky and it was at the same time cindy sherman's retrospective was at mca chicago which is the city i was in college in and um she had put them in like very high gloss um, glass frames. The works that are the ones that her like mid period, like the later period ones where mm-hmm. there's all the um, guts and stuff out. And I have to tell you, it was the first time, despite having taken a lot of art history as like a uh, high school student and spent forever at the CMA, at Cleveland Museum of Art, I didn't know that people chose the treatments of framing and display until that moment. Because I walked into class, we had to go see it for school. And I walked into class and I was like, you know, that like, it's just too shiny. And she was like, why is it shiny? But I can't not, I can't see her artwork. I keep seeing me. And she was like, why is that happening? And I honestly never understood why you would want 
someone to interact with your work because I saw it as inert. I get that. And well, and that's the thing with all of these pieces, whenever they're framed, um, I actually have to use museum glass because they're so reflective that if I don't use museum glass, you get a double reflection happening. Like no matter what the piece has a reflection, I don't want even more reflection, like putting this sort of barrier between the viewer and actually seeing the work. But now I'm starting to think about creating barriers or, you know, even like, making it where the space becomes part of the piece or the viewer becomes part of the piece. I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to actually come to fruition or not, but it's, it's something that I've been sketching with a little bit. I, I also like when I, so I obviously because of this podcast, talk to Sophia all the time too. And I find it really interesting how much people don't realize that the work is just like a moment in your thought process <laughs> that there's all this stuff happening here and potentially all this stuff happening there. And oh this God, is like right in the Seema. middle. The fact that like the works that I made in school that I'm kind of over and would love to move on to making glass, <laughs> talking about photography through glass, and now they're getting traction and I have to keep making them. I'm like, well, fuck, all right. I've got, I'm sitting on something and now I kind of have to keep doing it even though... I'm ready to move on. I think I think people just don't realize that artists are humans. <laughs> like, you, like you have thought processes like us. Like I cook something for dinner and I'm not thinking about that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something with these works. I mean, they don't take long to make. A lot of people like, it's not like Frank who will spend, you know, months, you know, making an oil painting. I mean, some of these pieces from, you know, like start to finish have taken 10 minutes to make. And I think this is the thing, though, about your about anybody's work. So if it takes a long time or a short amount of time, um, and my husband is a lithographer, and um, I assure you that I still, he will not let me near any of his stuff. <laughs> the press, <laughs> the, the stove. He's always like, he's always like, because I'm chaos. Like, I am just chaos so funny. in motion. Um, and... <laughs> I'm always like, and I always like to make fun of him about like, I could do kitchen lithography. He's like, no. Um, but I would say from experiencing him, it doesn't matter how long that process is. It's also all of those hours. So Joe's 10 minutes in the studio is plus thousands of hours getting to those 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, even like the very, very like start of these works, like doing all the tests was six months where I didn't make a single piece that I cared about. It was just going in and there was actually a point where I had all these different chemicals that I was trying out in different types of paper and I was using an eyedropper and I would literally put little dots on the piece of paper and then like write on sh with Sharpie next to it like this is this chemical at this dilution at this temperature so that I could like figure out what was actually happening. So that when I go into the studio, I could make a piece in, you know, 10 minutes if need be. Did you always take notes like that? Not always. It was with this body of work that I started doing that. Okay. And it only really happened for the first, you know, year or so of it. And since okay. then, I, I want to say that, like, yeah, I have a technical notebook for every piece, but I can just look at the pieces and I can tell yeah. you exactly how they were made because I 
I know the chemistry and yeah yeah at a certain point it like becomes a part of your intuition and kind of how you move through space and time well and one thing that I do like to sort of help me a little bit even though I don't need it is through the titling of each piece I actually put down like all of the information about how it was made in the piece and anytime anybody looks at one of the pieces or like the title of the piece they're like well what does this mean or because everybody thinks that there's like that it's uh like secret code it, but but it isn't a secret code it's just it's the best way it's that because you have a sneaky smile you always you can never tell if you're <laughs> if I'm being like serious or not <laughs> but you said everyone thinks you're serious it's because your headshot does not look like you your headshot you're standing and then you're always actually smiling <laughs> the real you is not that I guess but <laughs> yeah it's like everybody's always like oh is your process no my process isn't a secret like mm-hmm. like we had talked about oh you could do this okay go ahead and do it I'm the only person you know I'm the only person who can make the work that I make this is exactly yes. right oh my gosh you are you are the battery behind your work like even if someone knows your process they know your gear like even like in the collodion community no one will tell you what fucking lighting kit they use i spent years contacting people personally reaching out and just saying hey i'm new to this like kind of process i'm wondering what kind of lighting gear you use and people do not they do not share and it's there's it's it's crazy there's so much gatekeeping it well yeah it's like are you that scared that i'm gonna make something better than you like (laughs) how insecure are you Go, go ahead try try and use this process that I do waste you know hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. to you know on chemistry and paper to try it no matter what it's not going to look exactly the same as my work exactly so yeah so I'll let people know about my process I'll let people know what chemicals I use it's mm-hmm. it's not but also it's about originating it right like I mean for better or for worse and I don't know that it's the best thing that the art world is about this but a lot of it is about being the first person mm-hmm. oh you, and being you different. have a new idea yes right so like so like, that doesn't really matter? exist no, new exactly. ideas don't exactly. exist anymore. exactly I'll, I'll be the first person to say my work is a mashup of like four or five different artists and yeah. i feel like everybody's practice is that way at this point like oh my god that's my entire portraiture practice and i do that deliberately like there's no way to get away from it no nobody's in a vacuum though this is where i really mm. it drives me sort of nuts about visual arts <laughs> and i think it's because because i do i honestly think it's because it's people see it as money right like how come you get free money for doing yeah, no, really not knowing how much is in it but like in other things, even like cookbooks, right? Like Ina Garten, isn't that her name? The one who looks like has this. She is just remaking, like she's making meatloaf and making a lot of money. Nobody's saying like, Ina Garten, you cheated. You're making meatloaf. Why do artists have to make something? To- like, why do we have to be like, you're in a vacuum. You're completely new. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things you should understand like the history of where it came from. But as long as you're able to, like, own up to that, it's fine. Like, there's there's no original ideas anymore in the world. Like, we're, we're so connected that I feel like everything's... Someone's done everything at this point. Mm-hmm. But that's Absolutely. the dream. So, like, 
isn't that freeing? Like I think about it that is. sometimes, right? Like, well, I talk to my students about that, like especially with the idea of photography. Everyone's a photographer now, and photography has like the most gatekeeping. It's like, obsessed. The idea of like, oh well, I'm in school for photography compared to someone who just has an iPhone. Like, I think it's so freeing. It means you don't have to worry about making that important thing anymore. Exactly. It's not about that. Like photography and like even video now with like the idea of TikTok has become so democratic. Anybody can do it. Like let that be freeing and just do what you want to do. Have fun with it. That's that's one of the reasons we love that that app, like the ability to have organic growth, even though they are kind of taking it away very slowly. It's unparalleled. Like I, I stalled on Instagram for a really long time. And then this year went from zero to 11,000 in like five months. It's wild. Yeah. It, so I mean- it's interesting. Some of the growth there is because of people not understanding like, um, Sophie and I have both grown on that platform through controversial things. Controversial things. <laughs> so, but the way that I made a splashy entrance onto that app uh, before I understood that people don't understand nuance on that app. Uh, <laughs> or in the, the world, let's just be uh, That's true. Uh, so, because, you know, I love photo history. A lot of my work kind of plays into the, like, it, it's photography that addresses photography, basically, is what I do. I I love that. That's what I think my work does, too. Yeah, no, I feel like maybe we should kind of have a chat later on. Um, yeah. <laughs> my first, con- one of my first controversies was, um, <laughs> was about uh, Chuck Close and, mm. uh, you know, about photorealism. And people think photorealism is the height of art. And one of the things I said is that, um, you know, his point is to say that like with photography, it's changed the, the, the need, you know, the change, the tenor of painting. Now, Sophie, go ahead. So what I did, I came onto the app and cause I, you know, I love the camera obscura. I love kind of bringing photography down to its really kind of base elements of light just light traveling through time and space, maybe sometimes glass, maybe not. And I basically came on and said that art masters don't really exist because they were just people who had the time resources and tools because they used tools, even if we won't admit it to, you know, become masters of their craft. But I did it in a way where I called Vermeer a fraud because he used a camera obscura. And the critique that tracing should be normalized didn't land with everyone. I actually upset the creator of Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> so it was a, it was interesting. And then like, I kind of, um, I, but I took people through the process of kind of, you know, how halides exist. And I showed them the back of my large format camera and what happens to light when it kind of passes through Fresnel But you have an Australian and... accent. Aren't platypus from Australia? <laughs> So that was, that's kind of like the main thing where I seem to gain a lot of traction where people are kind of like, well, you, you don't really understand photo history. Like I've seen uh, Vermeer's like that Netflix documentary. I'm like, but oh my guy, I've like, I've got two degrees in photo history, like at this point. And I had someone telling me that the camera Lucida and the camera Obscura aren't related technology. And I just, 
I, I feel like I should join TikTok now just so that I can make very controversial. No, you no, really, totally really, could. you could. You could. <laughs> There's a there's a couple of people. Yeah, I told you we'd who... convince another one, Seema. <laughs> you would be. I'll I'll visit you over and over and over. Um. So you, I think that what I find really fascinating is the thing for me about photography is hard, and I know that like when I was starting out in grad school, we I had a couple of classes with the then photo prof um, at Case, who was also the curator of photo at the CMA, and his. A lot of people, and I think this is true about people who talk about abstraction as well, that they have to um, make it seem more serious than it is because people demean them, right? And so he had like a lot of deep thoughts about like old trees and stuff. And I like Tom Henson, he's a very nice man, but you had to make it a serious effort because people were were making it a, a, a leisurely effort, right? And so... Mm. I think that one of the things that happens with photo historians on any platform, but then like really distilled on TikTok, is that it becomes this very serious effort and a very like, um, I'm going to say this and I don't know any other way to say this, kind of like waspy effort, you know, like this kind of very, yeah. yes. like I don't know another way to, to say it, but it's like this sort of stripped down, serious, not funny. Um, and Outside so there's a couple academic. of people. Yes, mm -hmm. uptight academic is another way to say it, and um, so, which is coded as white, rich man. I and actually so... got the accusation that I'm someone who seems like they talk about photography more than they practice, um, which I thought was such an interesting criticism. Because, um, like, fundamentally, no, <laughs> like, I make a lot of work, um, and the idea that you know kind of it was it was really strange because like in the art world you kind of have to have concept tied to everything right like you you have to have theory you have to have concept it doesn't it doesn't have validity like you're saying Seema unless it kind of has all of this stuff behind it but then in this because one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is kind of reconcile the big a art world with the little a art world so because you know how there's kind of this space that is just so inaccessible for people and just doesn't yes. doesn't exist. And then you have, you know, people who make art every day to sustain themselves as, you know, slip cast, like mug makers and, you know, illustrators and graphic designers. And yeah, I don't know. I think there's, it's just the divide between how people think about art online and in these spaces is, is really vast. And it's, yeah. it's actually kind of shocking sometimes. Um, it is. I've been trying to reconcile that Mm. in the classroom with right like <laughs> yeah well because art schools for the most part don't tell you how to work as an artist and live and pay rent oh oh i told i told students all the time i'm like i'm considered a success story and i'm i'm drowning <laughs> i tell them that i'm like oh my god i'm so sorry i'm like i'm like i'm considered a success story and like i ain't doing good i ain't doing bad but you know mm like is it hard to kind of come up against that um that image that people have of kind of you know success and how they perceive your career and no i just tell them the blunt honesty especially in school like yeah. i went like i love academia i love teaching but something needs to change and I'm hoping that I can be at least a small part of the change. Totally. I went through the machine. 
I'm paying off the machine by working for the machine now. Mm-hmm. And I wish when I was in school that people would have been more honest with me about those types of things. I'm being honest with the students about those things now. Like, look, you might not like, it's okay if you're not a photographer, when you get your degree in photography, you could run a printing business. You Mm -hmm. could just photo edit. You could, you know, film scan. There's so much stuff. Like, yeah, you don't have to like do this exact thing. Like I know we all have, you know, like hopes and dreams, especially when we're younger. Like, I thought that I wanted to be a photographer for National Geographic. <laughs> I stopped taking pictures during undergrad. That's sort of that's also one of the things I upset people about on the internet. <laughs> like like do you know how many photographers there are for that? Or like And who aren't like Steve McCurry just like bombed his whole goddamn career. Like turns out he was a fraud the whole time. Or, yeah. Or He was a fraud? Dude, oh, yeah. are you serious? Steve McCurry photoshopped. I don't even like, know who Steve McCurry of... is. Oh my god! So he was he was the guy who did the Afghan girl. Um, oh yeah, he faked everything. He he. So he some like photographer in Italy went to one of his shows, found a clone stamped piece of an image that went was clearly edited by one of his assistants and didn't go through him properly or whatever got sprung people like the whole internet just went into sleuth mode and started finding all of these inconsistent versions of images that he had released everywhere Shabat gula like you know that whole story with her there's so many versions of it out there and like there was that photographer who steve mccurry tried to sue for saying that he kind of like abused like his relationship with her and then like you know apparently that's not like maybe not necessarily like the whole story like she lives in italy now (laughs) and she's apparently safe so that's what counts oh, wow. because well, but I, I think you put her on blast her entire life but I then think... like going back to like i hate steve mccurry sorry the idea <laughs> of like success or anything or like being like these big photographers i know people who work for you know like time magazine all the time like i'm sorry they're not getting paid like hundreds no. of thousands of dollars no. to do that. No. they're getting paid a couple hundred dollars to do those things. i was like, TAing for hannah whitaker who photographs for time all the time and she's still doing teaching work she's still teaching undergrads yes like, well, and, I, and i had like some sh- like snot-nosed teenager come onto my tiktok the other day where i was talking about tracing and the validity of tracing and this person and someone was like yeah i love tracing like one of my teachers taught me that you know it's one of the really great fundamentals of learning how to get your body into learning you know drawing and then this this kid goes ugh a teacher and i, I couldn't hold back i was like my, my brother in christ like that's if you I, want well, to work as an that's artist the american that's the american education system in exactly. it exactly like, yeah well. just, yeah <laughs> that's, but, that's a whole another thing totally i think that was, there's a thing about scale. such a disconnect Right, like that people don't understand that something that gets out there, like this is about any visual art, actually, mm. that, that somehow they perceive, like, because they maybe understand music royalties. You know, what's that movie with Hugh Grant where his dad made a Christmas song and then he became wealthy for life? That they perceive that, we'll just have to figure that out later, but um, about a boy, maybe? And, oh, yeah, that's um, right. Thing. Oh I never God, I know old. a pop culture reference. This yeah, you're doing well. <laughs> I never get one. I got two today. Especially because um, like every trans mask out there in the world is trying to get a Hugh Grant haircut right now. Seema, you're on trend. <laughs> I'm on trend too. I never know a pop culture reference. Joe is always telling me about movies that I've never seen. So congrats. Um, but 
that this idea of royalty, so maybe lots of people know Joman X work, but he's not getting money for every time somebody sees it. I, I actually kind of want to do an episode about this because, you know, why do artists yeah. in every other kind of domain get royalties and why are contemporary artists bound to giving 50% to an art dealer who in any, in any other industry you would be giving 10 to 15% to a publicist? Well, I mean, why, that's, why that's the gap? Been, well, even going past, like, the idea of galleries going to institutions, mm-hmm. I mean there aren't the big one <laughs> i mean there aren't that i mean i know that institutions will help artists if they are showing the work mm. but it's not like it's not guaranteed you never know like there have been a lot of times that i've put up more money for exhibitions than the spaces that i have exhibited yeah well because they know that you as an artist want to be acquired you want to have your name in you know, museum acquisitions and that, and, you know, institutional acquisitions, and they know that, and they will, <laughs> they'll fuck you <laughs> really openly, I think, in some ways, even if it's kind of all, it's never really said, but, you know, it happens. Um, and that's something that we were kind of talking about as well, maybe doing an episode about Seema and I, is that, you know, this week I was asked by a couple of curators to create new work. They contacted me basically on one of the last days of 2022 and said, we're installing January 6th or 7th. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, like I'm, I'm happy to do it. I made that, that thing that I showed you and I, you know, I'm happy, but like, and they did actually offer to fund some of it. So it's not, it's not a total faux pas. Um, but you know, this is one of the things like your, your time gets kind like you get pushed, you know, I had to come home from my day job and stay up later than I would like to, to make sure that that was produced and be, you know, it, it takes over your entire life. These kinds of short timeframes, expectations, installations, you know, getting things delivered on time. Yes. That's, that's what I'm happy about right now is like, I used to hate when I had nothing coming up. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with having nothing. Right now, take a break. (laughs) That's like enlightenment. You've come to the point of enlightenment. I mean, this Um. is the first point, like time in my career, where I am actually okay with like taking a step back for a little bit. That's exciting, and I think it's because you know I'm almost thirty-seven, and I've been going nonstop since I was eighteen. Yeah, on this, like, but also like rest is productive, and I think that's one of the things that we don't really acknowledge in, well, like you know institutions, capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, don't want us to acknowledge or realize. And I also think that's one of the reasons that artists are kind of kept in this narrative, right? Starving artist narrative. You have to be a genius to kind of get above the crowd because you don't work a nine to five. You don't do labor in the same way. You don't add value to the system. And I think because of that, there is this idea, especially because often political commentators were the people who spark discussion and like, you know, confusion. Yes. all those things. And then that, that's a threat. Of course it's a threat. It's always been a threat. Keeping people going to these like Ponzi scheme art schools where they're going to find the people that they want to work with and they'll probably get a leg up in some way. And like, I'm not going to devalue because, you know, I had a relatively good experience. I'm, I'm where I am now. But at the same time, like it's a, <laughs> it's a system that serves just keeping this whole status quo and this, you know, like we said, and now, first episode seem like hermetically sealed 
art world that's just gambling for wealthy people. Yeah. But it's like, and we're all cogs in the machine. Like Joe, Joe has mm. seen me trying to get artwork into an installation or trying to get shipments in and like yeah. being like, all right, well, looks like it's not coming or I don't know <laughs> if I'm going to get it. I don't know. And it's just, <laughs> you know, like you could only laugh, right? Like we would just laugh because like, oh, well, <laughs> it looks like we're going to do this now. Mm. But it's because basically the system keeps everybody in penury. It needs everybody's labor to be below scale like there is mm. almost no one in the art world who's making true to their hourly wage because they're putting in if not actual like it's it, but it's not like it's not factory labor it's intellectual labor it's emotional labor it's you know all of these things and so people can't quantify those mm. yes i think that's why i like having the second side of my practice you know i have like one practice side of my practice that exists in the small a art world and one that exists in the big a art world and there's this ability for me to kind of value this work highly because the other work is starting to gain traction so mm. you know i my my labor for the stuff that's going into the contemporary art world the big a art world is not getting valued at what it should be because you know i'm putting silver and incredibly expensive things into these pieces and then these same kind of thing but i'm gonna charge you like over a thousand bucks for eight hours of my time it takes forever yes. <laughs> i mean i'm i'm in a similar position i mean i have my you know big a studio practice mm -hmm. and then i have my small a I mean, I guess it's still technically big A maybe, but like sides of like teaching, photographing, yeah. like editing, all of those types of things. But would you say that like with time and becoming a mid-career artist, like your small A kind of starts shifting into the big A or is that kind of like a conscious choice that you made or? I think it's all sort of just become the same yeah. at this point. Like, well, I just... like they're not separate practices and that's something because, you know, this studio work informed my abstraction work they, they're from the same they're from the same me <laughs> that's actually another thing people i hear a lot in commentary people somehow perceive that artists are living two lives there are two people like um jekyll and hyde when they're really just one person whose everything goes into everything yeah yeah i mean they're so true it's it's odd because I mean, almost every single artist that I know is doing multiple things to get by. Like yeah. my studio, like the actual production aspect of my life, I wouldn't even it's call like it a like teeny a, tiny part. It wouldn't even be a percent, I don't think, of my life. Like it wouldn't even equal 1% of my life um, with, you know, like, teaching, photographing, editing, you know, like research, and then just, you know, being a normal person, <laughs> you know, relaxing sleep, which I barely do. Yeah. Like, this is one of the things that I, I keep thinking about, you know, then the juggling all the different sides of everything. Um, it's like, when do I find the time to meal prep and like date? Like who, who has time for everything? Oh, you, you just have to <laughs> Turn the work into dating. You could only do two of those three. Take you just, two of you the just, three. You just have to be like very strict and regimented. That's, I mean, Seema knows about my regimented schedule that I have. 
Are you I laughing at my face? About it? No. no, I'm laughing at him because Joe and I could not be more opposite. So like I used to always laugh. He is like so organized and regimented and I am just like. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I've actually gotten away from my regimented schedule a little bit. Like, Ooh, I mean. New era? Like, I mean, not really. I mean, I'm doing the same stuff, <laughs> but I'm just like being a little more lax on it. I mean, today I didn't wake up until 4.45. God damn, that sounds nice. I will say that this morning my cat woke us up five. And so um, Coco's so rude. Coco's rude. Um, and I got up and because my husband had heard me telling, my husband, I don't think, I don't know if you guys have met at like 78 or something, but uh, he said, oh, well, what are you trying to be like, Joe Minnick? because <laughs> i got up so early because i used to say when we used to work together he's been up like i get up at six or something i'm like joe has been up for two hours <laughs> I, I i mean yeah i woke up a little bit later than normal i went to the gym came home got ready and then we're doing this and then after this i'll probably <laughs> eat and probably read and figure out studio things Mm. So I, I do think that, um, I know, you know, one of the things that I also think is really interesting, having met many artists in my career, is that it there's also not one way to be an artist. Just like there's not one way to be a photographer. To go back to that uh, thing we were talking about earlier, whose name I don't remember, the one who, the Natural Geographic photographer. I mean, I kind of, you know, the thing for me is I'm so, si like, the art world is so siloed. I don't really look at, I mean, I look at images that are obviously, like, every human, but mm -hmm. I do, like, my brain doesn't really focus on artists who aren't doing fine art photography. So, like, I don't even know. Um, but there's not, like, there's not one way because he has proven to us that you can fake it with the camera, right? Like, we can fake it with all ways. And I think that's a really great thing for our listeners to hear, like, you can be any way to be an artist. Yeah. Yes. You can you can be, you know, strict and regimented mm. or you know, you can You can be like me and never take notes for anything. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, you can spend a week where like you have to be at the studio at 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. like every single day and you have to spend, you know, like at least 6 to 10 hours there like at a time. And I know, you know, artists that are like that I know artists that just make work whenever they feel like it my I do not know how anybody can do that like I I mean I have everything like so organized I think that either. I think it comes down to access though right like you have the ability like if you have a home studio you have the ability to kind of just like make thing making things you know as they come to you a part of the structure of your life right yes that, that takes a lot of effort and resources and that's kind of like the situation i'm in right um i have the ability to roll out of bed move into the next room and then i can kind of start working I, whether or not I it can... kind of comes out at the right time this yeah. remains to be seen <laughs> the, the idea of production i cannot do in my home studio mm -hmm. but at least i could you know like sit here and look at images or like or yeah. archive things mm -hmm. that's and that's one of the things that was like the last big thing that I did over the summer was I archived everything that I have and mm. like make sure to organize everything. And I'm so happy that I did that. It makes it so easy anytime that, you know, I have to speak with my gallerist about something and they're like 
asking about a piece it's like oh it's right here let me send this out to you Mm -hmm. I think people don't realize that like people always think all artists even if I joke like um you know that I'm loosey-goosey in some ways like you know art historians can't actually be loosey-goosey because I have to have notes and citations and but Mm. we're nothing compared to artists and I think people perceive artists or these people with like scarves who can just be like it's so fun it's so easy but every artist is running a business about themselves on some level yes my my favorite thing to say and this came like when I was working in the studio and I had an assistant but now I say it to all of my students I'm like it's called artwork for a reason. We don't call it art fun. <laughs> and it's and it's like a dad joke, but it's it's the truth. It is work. Like we have to put in the work. It is not all fun and games. Most of it isn't fun and games. No, really. It's rough. Like we, we chose uphill battle for life. Because well, it's a system that doesn't want to see you succeed. Um unless you know, you're part of a very particular demographic. And even then, it's still going to be hard because, like, you you have to be someone who's willing to kind of also, if you really want to be in that, like, high ego space, you have to let your art be, you know, adapted into something that maybe it's not, it's not for. You know, it becomes a, becomes a form of gambling. It becomes a tax deduction for someone, you know. And it just, I don't know. Sometimes I really wonder about why <laughs> I'm making work in the big A art world. I mean, I think, I mean, I sort of know the reason why I do is there's nothing else that I would rather do. Like, or there's nothing else that I can do that I feel like I can do as good as I can do this. Like, no, that's, that's kind of where I'm at too. It's, and I think, I think most people, you sort of have to come to that realization. Like, I have to be making this work. It's mm. not like that I want to make this work. I have a need to make this work because these are the things that I want to speak about. Mm-hmm. And this is the only way to speak about them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great place to um, sort of end up because I think that's the question that so many people ask me as like an as an art historian they were always like you know do you like why do people become artists or should I become an artist and I mm. can't answer that for anybody but I think that what you're both saying is like you have to answer it for yourself if there's nothing else to do not, if you need to get it out and if you have something to say as well you know because that's and that's something that's kind of been really significant for me like I never really felt like my my voice had value for you know a really really long time and then I kind of you know through my photographic work I kind of started realizing that I had the ability to make things that resonated with people and that the way that I saw and perceived you know the world around me and other people and queer people and it 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 meant something and then with this abstraction work and how it found its you know basis in the Australian fires and kind of moved into this whole exploration of me thinking that photography can save the world um, and, and kind of you know allow people to understand that different perceptions exist and if we only kind of open ourselves up to the world and how it shows itself back to us right and I, I realized that there's an extraordinary value in that even if my work is similar to someone else's or it, you know is part of a process that has existed for a really long time or you know 
you know, my background and where I come from. And I think that maybe, especially in contemporary art right now, like, you know, people don't want to hear from white artists and that's fine. That's where we should be. But at the same time, like, I still need to make the work for myself. <laughs> like, I'm not going to stop making it just because it's not trendy and because it, people don't, people don't want to show it. Exactly. And I mean, that's one of the things I remember, I can't remember where I was, but someone said something like that to me. They're like, process photography is out. They're like, <laughs> you missed that trend. That was early, like, that was like late 2000s, early 2000 teens. Well, like, that doesn't matter to me. I'm going to keep making the work that I feel like I need to make. And, you know, yeah. even if you're making work that's similar to someone else, you have all of your own experiences that go into that, that differentiates it. Exactly. And I told, and I told the students, you know, like you can put as much as you want into an artwork, but not everybody's going to get it. And everybody's going to bring something different through their experiences. And exactly. that's sort of the great thing about art and going back to this idea of starting a conversation. Like my main thing for art is it's supposed to start a conversation Either, you know, internally with you, with how you're feeling, or, you know, externally with others. That's it. Well, that's, well, that's a wonderful place to end. That's this my episode. favorite place to end. That's right. Um, thank you for being here, Joe. Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, all right. Joe, I'll text you. Bye. Perfect. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey friends, our interview with Joe ran so long that I'm actually going to be uploading some of this as exclusive Patreon content, which you can find at Artlust Podcast. Be sure to follow us at Artlust Podcast on TikTok if you have topic suggestions, feedback, sponsorship offers, or just want to say hi. You can email us at artlustpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure if you want to stay up on all the drama as it happens in real time, follow Seema at Artlust and Sophie at Darkroom Varmint on TikTok, V-A-R-M-I-N-T. We can't wait to bring you more episodes. Enjoy the rest of your week.